All right, we are in uh, 1 Peter, chapter 3. You were with us uh, last Sunday, or the last two Sundays, we were looking at the opening seven verses of 1 Peter 3, and making that application of our changed identity, our transformed hearts and character because of Jesus Christ into our marital relationships. And so we're going to continue on with that application and in a different way uh, this morning to different people, again, in relationships. And so uh, we will just be, I'm going to kind of put the brakes on verse 8, and that's about as far as we're going to get. But I think it's interesting, Terry brought up, uh, I've got the I've got the great seat or standing, obviously, here of being able to see out the windows and the beautiful day the Lord has given us. Um, I think it's interesting because previous to living here, the last two places uh, Lisa and I and our family lived were in very, very sunny climates. The last one, 360 uh, days of the year, the sun came out. And I don't remember anybody saying, oh, it's a beautiful day today. But here in the Pacific Northwest, you know, you really grow to appreciate a beautiful day. And that makes a difference. Lisa and I go on a bike trail as often as we can when the weather is like this, about 12 miles, and we run into a lot of the same people every time. We've come to befriend them in a sense, even though we don't really know them. But the comments are, what a gorgeous day. Wow, enjoy this beautiful, beautiful day. You know, and it's, it's hands down across the board. Uh, everybody's happy and excited. And so, um, you know, God has... God has given us a beautiful place to live, and when the days are beautiful, we really, really appreciate them. Not that the days aren't beautiful when the sun's not out in just a whole different way, but I think we're all about ready for a little bit of sunshine this time of year and a little bit of warmer temperature. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, if you've got your Bible open there and you can stand for a moment, this will be a very quick moment, so not a lot of aerobics here. Uh, we're going to be looking just at verse 8. So Peter writes, to sum up, let all be harmonious. And depending on what uh, version of the Bible that you have, you may have a few different words here, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we just uh, we do thank you for the glorious new day that you've given us. We know every day is a gift from you, and may we use it wisely. And this morning, as we consider your word here in verse 8, we pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, understanding, and that you would be our teacher, Lord, as we work through this, that we be, would be challenged and encouraged in your truth. We pray together in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I want you to just picture a scene very quickly for a moment. It's very appropriate on our potluck Sunday. But you are running late for work. So maybe this is tomorrow morning, and maybe some of you have to imagine that you still have a job and you're munching on a long past the expiration date cliff bar that you found stuffed between the seats of your car. And it doesn't take very long to get halfway through it, and it just doesn't taste right. 
And so that's about as far as you get. Well, at work, by about 11 a.m., your stomach now is really rumbling, and daydreams of a local a deli sandwich consumes most of your attention at that point. You drive all the way over there, you find that it's closed, your lunch is over, you have to get back to work. Then after multiple interruptions that evening, one after another, dinner is delayed two, almost three hours, and at this point now you're falling apart. You feel very agitated, you, feel, you begin to feel irritated, you're not thinking straight. Hunger in a first world context, has dominated your day. Literally in some way infiltrated every hour of your day. Yet, though the details of the situation might be vastly different and exaggerated for one day, it's not that uncommon, is it? To be thinking about food, to be thinking about food right now. <laughs> How often do we even casually use the phrase, think about it, hey, I am so starving, right? Meaning, I need to eat now. Well, think how you feel at those particular times when you express feelings like that. And as you think about that, what I want to suggest this morning as we shift gears a little bit is that there is a like condition of the soul. That, that dominates, that, that consumes those who are unredeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who don't know Jesus Christ as, as their savior, as their source of life. And we could call it the, the, the process of spiritual starvation. I know I was there. I remember what it felt like. Having a parched heart, a, a deep, painful hunger inside for, for just something substantial, something, something real, something genuine, something that, that might, unlike anything else you've experienced, fill you up. This is, according to the New Testament, zoom in on 1 Peter chapter 3, this is where the church comes in. Not the man-made variety that unfortunately, can merely mimic the, the show and the flash and the entertainment that has made them hungry to begin with. But the authentic power of renewed relationships in Christ governed by his truth. Now, Peter well knew, I believe, that this would be the gospel dynamic that the world was, was aching for, hungering for. Not fancy buildings, not mini concerts every Sunday morning, not polished programs. But as he says here in verse 8, changed relationships. He's already been talking about this. If you've been with us the last couple of months, changed relationships in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, to the government. Changed relationships in verses 18 through 20 in chapter 2 to employers. And the last two Sundays changed relationships here in chapter 3, the first seven verses to our spouses. And now he's writing changed relationships to one another in the body of Christ, his church. 
Let's put it simply this way. How we relate to one another is what a hungry world notices. Jesus Christ himself told his disciples in, in kind, of a, kind of a concise, sum it all up statement in John chapter 13, verse 35. He said these simple words, and I want you to remember. I want these words to kind of echo in your heart as we consider what Peter is telling us in verse 8. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement right there, right? So what's he talking about? He tells us, if you have love for one another. Think of the ramifications of that. All men will know that you are my disciples. That's how they'll know. Suddenly their eyes will open, their hearts will open. They will know when they look at you, you belong to Jesus Christ if you have love for one another. Does the world see the reality of changed lives in the way that we, Christ Church, more specifically, his localized church right here, the way that we interact with one another? And why is this all so important? So let's just go back for a moment, just very, very briefly here for a few minutes. We're going to back up and firstly consider the context of what Peter is talking about. So number one, we're going to consider the context. Remember, chapters one and two, at least to verse 10, lay out, as I've already mentioned, our changed identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter reminded us of such truths, which are repeated elsewhere in the New Testament, that we are chosen by God, that we are called out from the hungry herd of humanity by his grace to be, I quote, a people for God's own possession, verse 9 in chapter 2. He also tells us and describes us as living stones being built up as a spiritual house in verse 5 in chapter 2. Here to be living proof of the power of God. He's not talking about a church building. He's not talking about a physical place where we meet. He is saying you are the building stones of a living building that he is building up. We are here to show this world something real. No, not perfect. We know that. <clears throat> but regular people with regular problems who are tasting the transforming power of an amazing God. Well, as we think about that, as we consider the context, then let's lay that over verse 8. Let's remember that. Let's tie those two together, and then consider these commands that Peter is giving us. There's, there's five packed into this one short verse. Five key characteristics are commanded when he says, let all be, grammatically applies to each of the five. So how does he start verse 8? To sum up is the first little phrase. Or more literally, from the original language, finally. The idea here is not saying this is the end of the book and everything else added on is just a footnote. This is to say he is bringing everything that he has been saying thus far, he's bringing everything together and flushing all of this truth 
It's what we've been talking about, right? Those first two chapters to flush all this truth now into what it looks like in all of our relationships with one another in the local body of Christ. So what does he tell us first? What's the first characteristic? He says simply, be harmonious. Well, what does that mean? Be harmonious. In the original language, it's a compound word. That means it's made up of two or more words. Here are two words. So if we were to translate this literally in the Greek, it would be same, the word same, plus think. Same think or same mind. We could turn that around and make that grammatically a little easier and translate it as like-minded. So let's clarify what this means. Like-minded or to be harmonious. As believers, we certainly don't lose the, the individual uniqueness that God has given each one of us. Because we find that highlighted in Scripture in other areas. And in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and, and Romans, where he describes all the unique gifts that, that you bring to the body of Christ. So God, obviously, he made each one of you uniquely. He didn't make you as cookie-cutter people. So to be harmonious doesn't mean to be exactly like each other. That would be horrible. And the world's not hungering for that. They don't want that. They would look at that and right away think, what, cult or something strange, some kind of gathering of very odd, strange people. So what, what he's talking about here is that we are united in one spirit. We are united in one Christ. We are united in one gospel, the good news of Jesus we are united in the Trinity. We are united in God's empowering of us. We are united in our salvation in Christ. Ultimately, what he is talking about is we are united. He's been talking about submission here. We are united in our submission to God's word. To God's word. We discuss all kinds of things, come to our Bible studies. We have great discussions. We, we bring out our, our own perspectives and experiences. Last Sunday, we kind of opened it up for your sharing, which was great. I always love to do that and hear all of your varied comments. But what I noticed was you didn't all say the same thing. You didn't all have a, a pre-printed out thing that this is, the, uh, this is what I'm supposed to say now. And it all sounded the same in a dull monotone. But we come together under the sense that God's authority is final. We come under the belief, this is what we believe as Evergreen Community Church, that scripture alone is sufficient to guide us in all manners of life. This is where our harmony comes from. Now, we don't have to agree on the color of the carpet if we're going to get brand new carpet. That's always kind of a joke with a church, the color of the carpet, the color of the paint, you know, where the piano goes. I read of one church that was the first church of the right side piano, second church of the left side piano, real thing. <laughs> Depending on where they play, church split because they wanted the piano on the other side of the room. Ridiculous, right? We don't have to agree on all those kinds of things. We certainly don't have to agree on what brand of coffee we brew on a Sunday morning. And we don't 
have to agree on what the best of Tom's 54 shepherd's pie recipes are, right? But we should fight and stand up and speak boldly together when something doesn't gel with God's word, right? When his authority is being questioned or challenged, that's where we are to be harmonious, to be like-minded. Yes, God said this. And I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what kind of heat or persecution we get. We're in this together. God said it, final word. What do I go back to? It doesn't really in the end matter what our opinion is on something. It matters firstly what his opinion is. Second characteristic Peter writes in verse 8 is to be sympathetic. To be sympathetic. Well, we know what that means, right? In the original language, it literally means, and that's where we get the English word sympathetic from. It's almost letter for letter, the same in the Greek language. But it means literally to feel with the same feelings. That makes sense, right? To have a keen sensitivity to the emotional state and mood of others in the church body. In fact, we find precedent for this Elsewhere in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, these simple words, rejoice with those who rejoice and also what? Weep with those who weep. So we're getting a very practical word picture in that verse of what it means to sympathize. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 talked about this. This is in the context of your giftedness and your unique gifts in the body of Christ. Paul writes, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So there's this strong sense of being able to tune in to the emotional state of the unique individuals that God has placed in the body of Christ. Now, how do we do that? We can't do that if, if our experience of body life is merely, hey, how's it going? Great. Hey, have a good day. All right. Hey, I'm praying for you. Good. If that's about how deep it gets, and while we're running by each other and saying goodbye and waving from a distance and see you next Sunday or whatever, he's talking about a heightened sensitivity, a heightened sensitivity that we understand and that we're also interested in. It says, be this. It's a command. So it doesn't say, well, just this will just happen because you're part of the body of Christ. Or maybe some people have the gift of sympathy. There's no gift of sympathy. He's telling all of us to do this. How do we do it? By listening, by being honest, by, by coming out of our own self-world and really responding to people. So we see somebody rejoicing, we can rejoice with them. We can be an encouragement to them. We see somebody weeping. We see somebody sad. We, we see somebody that's just, we just get a sense that something is wrong, something is not right. We can enter into that same feeling as well. That takes Christianity away from just the Sunday meeting where we all run in here at the same time and then we all run out afterwards and we basically did church. We didn't do church. 
What we did was the very thing that's making the world hunger for more. We just met together in a meeting place, we got entertained, we got fed, and we left. But that's not body life. And I'm certainly not limiting that to a Sunday morning meeting. You are the church, you are the spiritual stones being built up into a spiritual house every day of the week. 24 hours a day, you are the church where you go. You go home three miles away, you're the church there. After church, you have to run an errand in Oregon City or Gladstone or Milwaukee. You are the church there. Let's look at number three. Be brotherly. Well, that's kind of interesting. What does he mean by that? Well, NIV, if you have an NIV translation, it probably says it a little bit better to give a sense of what the word means. It, it translates it as li love as brothers. And that's the idea. This comes from the Greek word philadelphos, which means a family-like quality of love. So mom and dad, siblings, extended relatives, a family-like quality of love. And Peter has already used this word two times in 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2, verse 22 in chapter 1, verse 17 in chapter 2. There's a strong sense here as a family love of devotion, of, of loyalty, of, of priority care. A lot of this gnawing hunger in the world comes from family dysfunction. All is not right at home. All is not right in relationships. All is not right between family and friends and spouses. And so there's an experience on a regular basis of relationships mean fighting. Relationships could potentially mean abuse whether it be verbal or physical. Relationships can mean the complications of addiction, of unforgiveness, of manipulation, of narcissism, of divorce, and on and on it goes. How can we counteract that hurt and that emptiness? How does Jesus Christ make a difference in how we interact as a Christian family? See, isn't it interesting that Peter chose that word? It's not agape. Now, if you've been here for a while, you should be familiar with the term agape. It's the highest form of love. It's another worldly love. It's a love that can only come from God himself. But in the Greek language, we have multiple, up to five, different words that are used to express love. Unfortunately, in the English, we only have one. We say love. But I can say, I love my cat and turn around and say, I love my wife. And hopefully I don't love them the same, right? But in the Greek language, we have all these different layers of what love can look like. So obviously as Christians, it's assumed we are filled with the love of God. Romans chapter five, the Holy Spirit has poured out his agape love within us. That love will express itself. It's an otherworldly kind of love, but it can also express itself in something we're very familiar with, a family type love. A love that is very, very devoted. A love that in a non-dysfunctional sense is very defensive of one another. 
Now, if you came from a good family with strong sibling relationships, with loving parents, and you're out in the world and somebody says any kind of a negative word about one of your siblings or your mom and dad, how do you react? You just go, yeah, you're right. Or, oh, yeah, and you just, you just get involved in it and say, oh, you don't know the half of it. They are so stupid. No, you're like, those are fighting words, right? I love my brothers and sisters, and I love my mom and dad. Don't you dare say another word because you don't understand. There's that fierce loyalty kind of love, and that is what Paul is talking about. That is what Peter is talking about should be exhibited, should shine forth from the body of Christ. Now, that would negate what? Backbiting. That would negate any kind of gossip. Does gossip have a place in the church? Or relationships that are not resolved, unforgiveness, just slighted somebody. Yes, it can happen within a church family. We've seen it. People are at odds with one another. They won't look at each other. They won't talk. We can't have that. That doesn't happen in a non-dysfunctional family. We are not just a regular family on earth, just like every other family represented on this street in these houses. We are the family of God. And our God is not dysfunctional. Here's number four. Be kind-hearted. Be kind-hearted. We could also translate this as tender-hearted which is translated in the NASB in Ephesians chapter 4, 32. Same word. It could even be translated with compassion or to be compassionate. What this word does, this word piggybacks onto be sympathetic. But it takes sympathetic a little further. It takes those feelings of sympathy deeper and requires action. It responds. It, it finds a way to alleviate a particular need. So it doesn't just feel. Feeling is a certain level because feeling means you're tuned in. You're not distracted. You're paying attention. But this word is saying, go beyond that. So we just don't feel something. We see somebody walk in through those double glass doors and they're carrying four very heavy bags. We don't walk up to them and say, those four very heavy bags must be really heavy. <laughs> or we don't say to them, you look like you are really struggling. I'm tuning into you. You're really struggling carrying those bags, right? Or walk up to them and say, you know what? One time, I really struggled with a bunch of bags. I had five. Oh, and I know what it feels like. That would be ridiculous, right? What do they need at that moment? So you sense something's going on. You sense struggle. You sense weight. You sense they're sweating. They're going, <sighs> their arms are bending down. What? What do they need? They need your intervention. They need help. They need relief. And I would certainly hope anybody in this room, even the kids, would say, let me take a bag or two from you. Or set those down. Let me help you. Right? That's kind of common sense. But in a spiritual sense, is it? People come in bearing weight. 
and baggage all of the time. How can we help them to alleviate that? How can we take that step further and say, not what can I do for you, but just do it? You know, it's easy to do that. To say, hey, if you need any help, give me a call. And how often do people call? If you ever need help moving, give me a call. If you ever need help with this or that or the other, give me a call. But sometimes we need to just do something. And somebody is in a situation and quite possibly they may not feel comfortable asking for your help, but they need your help. Do it. Here's the last thing that he tells us. And this kind of wraps it all up into a beautiful package. One verse, five commands. But this makes the other four happen. He says simply, be humble in spirit. Be humble in spirit. And I find this to just be brilliant because it, it takes a true humble spirit to reach out to people in all of these God-honoring ways in the first four commands that he's given us. Because to, to fixate on ourselves, to get kind of closed off into our own little bubble world of self, closes our hearts to be able to do any of these things that Peter's talking about. To be able to show the world that we're not just like everybody else. To show the world that we're not just saying, boy, I'm so busy. I am so busy and, and so distracted that it doesn't really matter to me what you're going through. I don't have better things to do. The world just sees so much of this, don't they? I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm too distracted. And to me, if you take all of those and you were to add those up like a mathematical equation, those three phrases, you would get the summation of that is, my stuff and my life is more important than your stuff and your life. Because that's what it tells people. I was in a retail place, I won't name the name, this last week, because it's such a common experience. But I came up to have my, what I was buying rung up, and the person was talking to another employee. And so I stood there. And they just got, were very, very animated and went on and on. And it had to do with a party and something going on the night before. And I just stood there. And there was a long line of people behind me. And, and I was just waiting and waiting. And they never even looked my direction. You ever had that happen? Kind of weird, isn't it? Suddenly, you are what? The invisible man or the invisible woman. And there really is no worse feeling to be invisible. Whether it be in a retail situation, whether it be at a party, a social gathering, a church. To feel like you're invisible is maybe one of the worst feelings we could possibly experience. The world knows how that feels. The world knows that there's a rush of humanity out there that could care less about them. Everybody out for themselves, march ahead, move ahead, distracted and too busy. That can't be our value system. It'll never work. 
Because an unsaved person would see that and say, I put up with that every day. Why on earth would I want to engage with any of you people when I deal with that garbage every single day? But to take the time in humility of spirit to realize that there's a little more to life than just my little world and to break out of my self-bubble and say, no, what you're going through is actually more important than my stuff. And to really reach out can make a phenomenal difference because it shows that the Lord Jesus Christ has come in and made a difference. This world is hungry. This world is starving. This world is empty. Relational dysfunction is the norm, I think we could say, in our world today. Surveys bear this out. How can we show them something different? And I do want to say one side note of encouragement before we close, that it warms my heart as a pastor to tell you that within the last six to nine months, I have heard comment after comment about your genuineness, about your friendliness, about your reaching out to each other. This is who we are to be. Keep it up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your holy word. Thank you for these commands. Thank you for your reminder that as the body of Christ, we are to be different. We are to show this world that while we are just regular people with lots of problems, that Jesus Christ can make a difference in how we relate to one another. We pray in his name. Amen.